Hi, I'm Tennille. And I'm Kelsey. And we're financial advisors from Allman Partners True Wealth, bringing you thought-provoking conversations around you, your money and your life on the Wealth Experience Podcast. We are back with another episode and today we're going to break down why the belief that you need to be picking stocks and time in the market is flawed and equip you then with 10 key principles that are the long-term tried and tested foundations of a better investment experience. So what about the lucky ones? Because, you know, there's people out there that do manage to achieve good returns with individual um, stock picking and it is true that some people do get lucky. Um, But buying and selling at the right time and doing this consistently isn't really sustainable. And all the stats are out there to show why. Um, And when you're thinking about acquiring and growing and protecting your wealth, this shouldn't be based on luck. And the risks that can be removed to enable for you to have a more fruitful and let's face it, more boring experience um, should be should be used. So, um, where do people go wrong? You know, is it chasing the excitement? Is it chasing the, the thrill? But um, maybe we'll dive into what you can do to increase your chances of success. So, Tanil, if you want to jump into the first key principle. Absolutely, Kelsey. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for the intro there. Um, first of all, you know, you mentioned the key boring there and, and um, investing is often, is often not exciting um, when you're doing it right, you know, putting it away and not looking at it um, day in, day out, minute, minute by minute, because otherwise uh, you can have some bad habits. But the first key that we tend to talk about a lot is understanding that markets actually work and having a, a real belief that markets work. And by that, we mean that all information that's already out there is priced into uh, the prices of, of shares or whatever market it is that you're looking at um, straight up. And the, the capital markets there, they represent a collective judgment of millions of investors and all that information that's available um, and it already being priced in. So rather than trying to go out and outsmart the market and say, well, I have some knowledge that um, or some, some idea that I think this stock's going to do better than the other 10,000 that might be available there, um, you know, just having that belief that um, the information, you're not going to be smarter than than all of that information that's already out there. Um, and information nowadays is live. Absolutely. Right? It's, it's yeah. immediate. And therefore, right. share prices, the change is usually immediate. That's too, right. Which makes it even more difficult, right? Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. And I mean, you know, there's there's the certain information that um, that is privileged, but, you know, they call that insider information. And that's not the type of information we're talking about here, which is something that that's not allowed. We're talking that's about... illegal. That's exactly right. We're talking about all that information that um, can be known about where a company's at, what its profitability figures are. That's all That's all priced into where the stock is sitting at that point in time in markets. So, you know, long-term investors who have, um, who have invested in this way and had the belief in markets, they're actually rewarded with growth, um, which is going to be higher than inflation because we, we know that shares carry with them risk and therefore a higher return is, can be achieved than inflation just by, first of all, having that belief that markets work and, and investing in markets in, in a whole. So, you know, why second guess that, I suppose? Yeah. 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 Which leads then onto the, the second principle to now. Absolutely. Yeah. So then we're talking a little now about the fact that um, we shouldn't be speculating with our funds. Um, We should in in fact be investing those funds. And so 
the, we coin those two things differently and we say that, you know, speculating uh, is about going out there and picking stocks and timing markets and trying to do these things uh, to get a return over and above what markets are going to give to me. Um, investing, it, media doesn't actually help us with investing, I might add, because they take a very short-term view um, and, and there's a lot of noise out there that there's uh, information that you should be using to go out and say, well, this stock's going to be doing better than the, the, the ASX, the Australian Stock Exchange, you know, top 100. Um, and so it's, it can all be very dramatic if you try and uh, pick those individual stocks on that basis. And there's generally a lot of buying and selling and a lot of guesswork that happens in that process. So returns don't um, reflect that activity, um, but perhaps this is because of, you know, things like those high trade fees and, and whatnot that can be involved in this. Um, and it's really about, you know, how many times do you get asked, Kelsey, about what stock's going to be the next one there? Quite often, but not usually by our clients. <laughs> but yeah, there, absolutely, there's people they do ask, you know, what's going to be the best one? And the real answer is, don't know. No one really knows that. And, you know, even if you did know, you might be able to go and do some you know, research on a couple of, of companies and you might come across some that might be undervalued, say, for instance, and you mm. might be like, that's the hot stock to go and buy. Um, that's not a long-term strategy with your wealth. You mm. may do well on a couple of occasions. Um, and it was, it's actually quite interesting because in my recent uni assignment, it's post-grad qualification, and um, same thing, they actually ask you in the assignment to go and individually pick stocks as mm. your first assignment. Mm. And the, the aim Crazy. of the game is to um, beat your peers in having the highest return in a five-week period. Mm. Um, and really, and then you have to go and justify why have you bought and sold each individual stock. And at the end of the assignment, you had to write a bit of an evaluation. And of course, for me, it was, this just proves that you can't do it this way long term and consistently. That's exactly right. And it's a lot of work. And I think you, the most apparent, uh, most apparent thing is that is a hell of a lot of work because shares move daily. Mm. Well, they're so moving, ha- they're moving every have, minute. Right. So if you want to have a really well-diversified portfolio, which is one of the key things of a, a good investment portfolio, how are you going to do that but be able to manage on a day-to-day basis absolutely everything that's happening with each individual stock? Mm. And you sort of, of mentioned a, a word earlier there that I like, and you mentioned the game in it because it does. It turns it into a game. It makes mm. it makes it something that's exciting. At one minute, I'm I'm happy and I'm exuberant that my stock's doing really well and I'm I'm beating my peers or I'm beating the investors out there. And in the next heartbeat, you know, it's fallen through the floor, um, and that can happen on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, um, And you know, absolutely, the difference there being that. Um, um, you know, we, we want to get back to those intrinsics of investing and not speculating. Yeah, which then leads on to the, the third principle, really, and that's take the long-term view. Don't get sucked in by the get-rich-quick schemes because um, if it's too good to be true, it, it usually is. And like I said, there's definitely few lucky ones. Like you can um, win the lottery, but it's not going to be a long-term sustainable option for you um, to grow your wealth. So what we do know, as you'd mentioned, is over the long term, the capital markets do deliver the returns, um, but it doesn't mean that they come year on year. And I think that's where people feel uncomfortable when they don't understand that if you're investing for the long term, you're going to have ups, really, really good years in capital markets and some not so good years. Um, so it's in those moments where you know you might have one or two years of negative returns. You've got to understand that that's absolutely normal if you've got the right foundations in your investment strategy. Um, and it's just part of the process and you will be rewarded by markets over time, but it is time that you have got to give it. That's right. And emotions can be really hard during that process because you know it's going up and down. And, and so taking that long term approach is absolutely necessary yeah. um, to 
to be able to get through those different spaces of time, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So I think um, we've touched on a couple of, of really key points there, but the the next area is a little bit more uh, meaty now. So when we're talking about investing, there are different ways that you can consider. And, and the fourth area that we're talking about now is considering those drivers of returns. So where do returns actually come from? And there's a wealth of academic research out there into what drives returns because simply just picking a stock and, and hoping for the best or picking a, a series of, of small cap stocks or of, of whatever it may be and going, well, I, I'm just going to hope for the best in this is not equipping ourselves with the information on, on where does return actually come from when we are looking under the hood there. Um, and when we think about it, we need to consider there's different dimensions that exist. So when we're in stock markets, so we're talking about equities now, there are some known dimensions of return that come to play. Um, and those can be things like the, the size of the company. So large companies perform differently to small companies. Um, and the large company might be, you know, a blue chip stock, a BHP bulletin with a high share price um, and some strong dividends. And a, a small stock might be something with a really low share price that's relatively new to the marketplace um, and hasn't hasn't made its returns as yet. Um, we can also have value companies versus growth companies. So a value company is one where their, their price on the stock exchange doesn't uh, reflect what they're actually worth on their books versus a growth company where those two things line up quite nicely. Um, and, you know, there's also other price to book equity, profitability, there's multiple layers of these dimensions of returns. And without having a real understanding of of those key drivers of returns and, and risk, therefore, um, it's very hard to know what you would expect your portfolio to be uh, producing for you relative to the entire market. That's right. So to know that you were saying there's, there's large stocks and small stocks and, and value stocks. So if you've got a portfolio that's invested in, in just large stocks, say, mm. um, you might get really strong dividends and a steady return, mm. but you wouldn't expect it to you know shoot the lights out in terms of some really big returns because large companies, they've already grown. Um, they're not really expected to grow much more than the size that they're at. And I think that's why when you're building your portfolio and you're looking at what's going to drive the returns, you still have to, yes, you want it to be a steady experience, um, but you still want to hold those factors in there like the small companies, don't you, so that you've got the opportunity of yeah. having higher expected returns. That's but right. Knowing that it does come with a little bit more risk. More risk, that's right. Because all these factors, you're exactly right, Kels, are risk factors. And uh, one of the key uh, problem points that we have is, is it, when investors get equipped with a little bit of knowledge too, and they go, oh, small cap stocks outperform large cap stocks, so I'm just going to buy those. Um, the, the inherent risk there is they start speculating. They go, okay, my small cap stocks are going to outperform, but now markets have fallen in the small cap stock space and they've fallen dramatically. And so now I don't feel good about it. I'm going to get out of it. So it, again, like you, you hit the nail on the head that it, if I know these different dimensions, I then need to create a portfolio that takes me through different periods of markets. And that might mean having diversification across all of those different dimensions. Yeah. 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 And, and we also have the same in those, in the, the cash markets, so fixed interest type markets. Um, there's, there's, uh, two different types of, of, uh, of risk and return factors there. We have term risk, which says that if I'm um, locking my funds away for a longer period of time, then I should be rewarded with a higher level of interest rates on that, uh, interest uh, return on that. And there's credit quality, uh, credit quality risk. So if I'm investing with a major financial institution or the government, perhaps that's a lower 
risk to me than investing with um, a, a small credit union or, or the likes and therefore my return would be expected to be higher with a lower credit quality risk. Um, there's also key consideration, things like currency and whatnot that we won't get into in too much detail. And we do have another podcast that we jumped into those areas of term and credit risk uh, specifically for cash. So uh, we might leave it on that basis and, and keep it quite high level and just understand that there's there's different dimensions that we need to be considering to understand where that return's actually coming from. But if we then take that back out to the big picture, Kelsey, maybe you can talk through you know the next key area here for us on, um, on how to build those portfolios then. Yes, so number five, a key principle is smart diversification. And I feel like diversification is such a buzzword <laughs> and everybody hears it when they speak about investing and like, oh, I know what that means. Um, but when we're talking about smart diversification and what that really, really means, what does it mean to be diversified? Mm. Um, you've really got to think about, you know, if you have, let's say, 100 stocks in your portfolio, does that mean you're diversified? Well, that, I, I, I think this one here uh, always gets me because if we – referred back to tech, some textbooks even, uh, they quote a number of 20 stocks. Yes. And do I think that 20 stocks is a diversified portfolio in its own sense, in its own right? Absolutely not. No. Um, because you've probably got 20 stocks and you've picked them all and they're, you know, all banks and, and you know, research companies or wherever the case may be, you've picked picked, a, picked 20 stocks. That's not diversified in its own right, is it, Kels? No, that's right. So let's say that these 100 stocks, say, were 100% in the Australian share market. That's not diversifying smartly. You might, of those 100 stocks, have um, lots of different um, sectors. Mm. So, you know, you've got banking, you've got pharmaceutical, you've got, you know, mining, you've got all of that in there. So you're diversified across sectors. Um, but there's another layer to that. You're 100% in the Australian share market. Mm. Um, and that's only roughly 2% of world markets, right? So that's, that's not a, really true diversification. If you want to capture yeah. the returns that are out there um, for investors and, you know, thinking of the bigger global markets like the US and, and, and so on, um, if you also diversify across those, that's probably doing it in a little bit more smarter manner because, as you can imagine, different share markets in different countries have you – know, they act differently at different times depending mm. on, you know, lots of different factors that get priced into that. Um, and there's lots of ways then that you can think about diversifying. So country, um, the industry, as I'd, I'd mentioned, um, and you want to be smart about this, but it doesn't mean that you um, shouldn't have high weighting in certain areas as well. And I think – you know, people go, well, I'm, I'm diversified, but you can also miss out mm. by being too diversified, right? Is, is that is that possible to know? Mm. Yeah, well, so just to back up that, there was a, a key point that you're making earlier about the different markets, right? And so one thing I w wanted to point out for our listeners is that there is a difference between um, the assets that you're investing into in those those sectors, uh, sorry, those asset classes. So, um, you know, you're speaking about the fact that there's diversification in in your Australian share portfolio by having 100 stocks or 200 stocks or however many you have, um, those asset classes is really the key then that you're talking about getting those the, those diversification across those different areas. So, That's right. So, you know, th there's the share market. So you might you know, choose a weight into that and then diversify within that asset class. Mm. Um, but you've also got global share markets, you've got um, emerging markets, you've got property markets and, um, and obviously your cash and fixed interest type instruments as well. Mm. Um, so yes, you're right across the asset classes that also needs to be considered. So I think that I want to take it away from the buzzword of 
diversification <laughs> because what does that really mean and actually go well there's lots of ways that you can diversify but to do it smartly there's lots of different layers that you have to have to think about mm. um and so that's pretty much diversification in a nutshell so the next <laughs> one number six much. yeah yeah um well now we've got this portfolio right so we've 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 picked our, our assets and our different asset classes and um, and we understand that markets work. We're looking at things over the long term. Um, the, the, the next thing that we find um, for myself to see a lot of investors can go wrong in this space is the temptation to time markets. Um, so now I'm ready to invest. I, I am going to put, you know, Fifty thousand dollars into a portfolio. The first question might be, "Oh, should I should I get in now?" Because markets are, have been going down in the last week. You know, that's a timing decision. Now we're saying, I, "I'm going to take an expectation of what's going to happen from tomorrow onwards," and. Um, we don't know what's going to happen from tomorrow onwards, but we know the best way to get an investment, a good investment experience is to get in as quickly as as you can once you're ready to and you've got your funds available and then to leave it there for the long term. So, um, so some people think that, um, you know, when a recession's happening or a downturn's happening, maybe it's time for me to get out now. Um, this then goes back to that, that comment we were talking about with emotion coming into play. So it's it's quite easy for financial advisors to sit on the other side of the table and say, um, you know, markets are, are in decline and, I, and now is the best time for you to be holding your assets, continue holding them. And if anything, if you've got further funds that you want to be investing, if we know that the idea is to buy low and to sell high, you should be getting in and investing at this point in time. When emotion comes into play though, and that's my own money, and it feels quite uncomfortable, um, those times of recession where where markets are, are getting low, um, the uh, avoidance of, of getting, you know, not going in in market timing is, becomes really important. So this one's interesting to me, particularly when we think about recessions, because you know, I actually had someone say the other day, oh, it's all a little bit uncertain at the moment. I, I really feel like something bad's coming. Mm. You know, there's going to be a recession. You can't have all these factors come into play, wars, pandemics and all these things and something bad not happen in share mm. markets because they've been going relatively well over the past couple of years, right, for the most part. Um, and I said, well, okay, if we think that's happening, should we just get out of the market now whilst it's good and then just wait for the recession to happen and then we'll get back in? Okay, but what if that doesn't actually happen? Because at this moment in time, we're not there. Markets aren't declining. We're not in a formal recession and that's not what's really happening. So if you take that approach, you time the market, let's say you – you said, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to sell my assets and you're now sitting in cash. First thing being, what if the recession doesn't happen two, three, four, five years from now and you've just got your money sitting in cash? That's a huge opportunity cost because during that time, markets are going to deliver returns and you're going to miss out on those by not being there. Um, and second to that, let's say even if there is a recession, so you're still trying to time there is a recession, great. So you get affirmation that I was right, I pulled out at the right time. But then when are you comfortable enough to get back in? Because mm. the next part of that process is going, when is it going to be low enough for me to feel like it's the right time to buy in? And this happened a lot 
post the global financial crisis. So earlier mm. on in, in my career, I saw a lot of cases where we had, um, you know, new investors coming through the door and they, maybe it's their superannuation or whatnot, um, they'd made a decision to sell out of those assets and put them in cash during the GFC because it was just it was just such a huge event and it caused so much emotion in them um, and they felt comfortable to do so because there was a period of time while those markets were just not not going through their recovery it was taking a long time um, but the 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 risk and the detriment that that can cause to a portfolio because you don't know when to get back in and, and most mm. typically it's when things start to pick up again. <laughs> um, so now, uh, you know, is that really going to be my best best point of getting back in when when markets are, have already recovered and I've missed some of those good That's returns? Right. And, and how do you feel about that as an investor? Because there's every possibility there that um, you miss buying it when markets are down and they start trending upwards and you go, well, now I don't feel good about what I've done. So I'm not going to buy in now either. and I'm going to wait for it to go down again. And then you're in this vicious cycle. Mm. Um and on the contrary, when we think about individual stocks as well, and we see this often still to this day, you have people that have um, individual shares that they've held for many, many years and it was a, a bad decision and the price isn't where it was when mm. they purchased it, um, but they can't let it go because you know, I'm just going to wait until it comes back. But when you're thinking about individual shares, it might not come back. That's right. I mean, mm. you have those those different sectors that just, you know, you know if we thought that print, print um, media was going to be the thing of the future that might have been the case 30 years ago but now we know that the, the assets in the, those classes they just they don't have the same potential as something like a, a fang stock or whatever the case may be in the current mm. climate and that changes over time it's very it's very cyclical yeah, yeah so right. definitely the key throughout all of this is if we bring back to that that uh, that high level is it's not about timing it's not about when to get in and when to get out it's about being invested over time yeah. And which brings us to the, the next principle, number seven, which is manage your emotions. And I think we've just spoke about some of that now in the last one, because the time in the market has a lot to do with uh, emotion. Um, but let's not disregard the fact that it's hard when you're thinking about your money and, and what you want to achieve and, and what it might be taken away from if it doesn't go right. Um, it can be an emotional process. Um so, you know, we're driven that way, is particularly when we think about money in terms of, you know, impulse spending. Money drives us emotionally in mm. many, many different ways. Um, and, you know, that can happen when you're investing and we do see that happen. It doesn't really sound smart, right? Emotional investing <laughs> doesn't sound very good at all. And that's really based on the principles of, of greed and, and fear. So what we were talking about to now, greed, you're, you're buying in when markets are high um, and then when markets are going down, you're getting quite scared and then you're selling out a, a low and it's just the cycle and, um, you know, herd mentality comes into that too. Everybody's saying, you know, market's going really well, I'm buying in, you jump on the bandwagon. Um, that's not really a smart decision. It's, it's purely emotional based. It's not too logical and you have to think about all the other principles that we've spoke about today and, you know, like I said, it's really normal for us as humans to, to do that. Um, but you've got to be rational and if markets are down and you're seeing your capital drop by, you know, 20%, but it's okay because you're really well diversified, um, it can be uncomfortable, but you really do have to, to ride that out. And I think a good advisor will help you through that process. Um, they'll prepare you ahead of time for, you know, what to expect. But when you go through those times, they'll be the person there that you can lean on to kind of 
talk those things through and feel a bit more comfortable through That's those right. cycles. Yeah, it is that sounding board, isn't it? Because like you say, when when markets are down, emotions are high, I don't feel comfortable with this, I'm losing my shirt, I need to get out. Um, a good sounding board will be telling you why, you know, what, what do you need the money for at this point in time if, it, if your situation hasn't changed and you can now buy 10 apples for the price of what it cost you for five apples uh, last week, why not jump on that? bandwagon or conversely when markets are high and you go oh this is great um i should be buying buying in more at this point in time uh, do you need to be over committing yourself should you be buying assets that are more expensive than they were previously or is there a more staggered approach that we can take to this so that you're just doing this in line with your own strategy and what works for you that's right that's yeah. right yeah. um so then on to the next one and i'll keep this one really high level because we have again touched upon it but the eighth principle is look beyond the headlines now, we'll often see headlines you know Retire rich, sell stocks now or looming recession. Um, another one we've seen quite recently, housing market boom, all of those things, they sound um, quite tempting. But what that happens is that you actually, you're tempting to fate and uh, it's fads. It's, it really is fads at that moment in time. And I think you just need to consider back to the other principles. Does this align with my long-term goals? Is this a short-term decision that I'm making here? Does mm. it mean I'm going to be diversified? Um, and just try and dampen the noise, you know. Watch watch the news, hear the media, but don't align that with your investment decisions. Mm. And social media can make this particularly hard too because it can feel like it is um, a matter of fact when a lot of the information out there is yeah. just opinion. Yeah. Um, and we should we should really be putting that overlay on our thinking when it comes to investing and, and, and a lot of broader categories. But um, if we take that approach and say, well, this is an opinion that's been put out there. And if I, I take that opinion for what it is and then I go and do my, my own research with, with specialists and with the, you know the, the, that knowledge, uh, get that real good investing knowledge, um, I can then st- start making those smart choices um, when it comes to investing rather than just being driven by the, the emotion that can be created by those headlines. Mm. And the headlines, they don't really give you much context. So when it comes up on the news and they do their um, daily segment on share markets, ASS stocks tumble relative to what from yesterday's price mm. or five years ago that's right but emotions emotions sell you know we know that that's the case we yeah. know that there has to that's be right. an emotional trigger that's generated for the media to be able to get people to buy into what it is they're they're, they're talking about what they're selling yep um, exactly right if we go back he's just said emotions are not the best way we shouldn't be emotional investors and that's that's hard got to have those sounding boards you need to have that that ability to pull yourself out of that space and make informed decisions rather than be letting those emotions take the take the driver's seat that's right but if we assume that now we we can really understand you know the drives of returns that we're we're investing for the long term we're diversified we've got got all those areas covered um one of the the second last principle we'll talk through is um about the control on things like costs. So keeping costs low when I'm investing is a really great way of giving myself a better overall outcome. Because I, I like to explain it this way: if you can reduce your costs by uh, you know 50 basis points, that's 50 basis points that you don't need to go chasing in additional returns. It's a guaranteed win for you. Um, so there are a lot of uh, myriads of investment products out there, and some. Of them will be high cost, some of them will be low cost. But if you really can get in there and, and find true products that have a low cost, um, you can really minimise the risk of your wealth being eroded because of those costs. So just to talk on what triggers some of those costs, Neil. So 
if you've got an investment that's really, really high cost, so you know, let's say you've got a, a fund, so you're not buying individual stocks and shares, but you've got a fund that's really high cost, mm. um, that's because of all the buying and selling and the expertise that you're you're paying for, right? And then oh. you have to evaluate, well, are they over the long term delivering that expertise and value in addition to the costs that I'm paying for this, right? That's right. That's right. And especially in that that space of speculating and and actively trading those assets, um, there's a lot of evidence that shows that those high cost funds that are in the speculative space they they don't tend to outperform their relative benchmarks on the long term basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, if I'm getting a market like return, but I'm paying an extra 50 basis points or one percent or whatever the case may be. I am losing out. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not doing better than what I would have otherwise been just taking a broad market approach. Yeah, and yeah. that's where it comes down to. It doesn't need to be exciting. Mm-hmm. It needs to be boring, and that's where you'll probably keep your costs lower too. Mm, that's right. That's exactly right, Kel. So, and and if we summarise this then and say that from um, for our last point, the keys here are that if I can focus on what I can control. Because there's a lot of things that we can't control. We can't control government policy. We can't control, you know, pandemics. I can't control um, what's happening with inflation and interest rates. Um, but what can I control? Well, oh, first of all, everything that we've just gone through today puts a lot back into your circle of control. How diversified my portfolio is, um, what level of costs I'm willing to spend, taking a long-term approach, all those key factors, they they are within my control what else is in my control is setting myself in place a plan, um, doing that with a good advisor um, or with with somebody who has specialist knowledge in the areas that I don't. If I don't have air, specialist knowledge in some of these areas, um, and setting that that it's sound investment plan that fits both your needs, your risk tolerance, it's structured well based on those dimensions of return. You know, it, it's going to be diversified globally um, across all those asset classes, and we're managing those costs and taxes then staying disciplined. The hardest step then is just to stay disciplined to my plan. So it's, if we if we draw that circle of control, understand what's in it, what's outside of it, that will give us a much better experience, um, particularly over the long run. That's right. So that's us for another podcast. And if you have enjoyed this episode, it's left you wanting to know a little bit more about the investment space and tune in next time where we deep dive into the technical side um, of the investment world with a very special guest. And if you have enjoyed the content, please don't forget to subscribe, share and leave us a review. Um, And we'll join us next time. The opinions of the presenters are objectively ascertainable and are not intended to be financial product or personal advice.